This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome back. This is In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Today we're talking with our guest, Chris Green, and we're talking about the procedure and the tradition of having our Supreme Court justices appointed. And this topic was selected uh, before business happened uh, earlier this week. So good morning, Professor Gershon. We're glad you're here with us today. Well, good morning, Liz. When you when you posed this topic to me, I could think of no better person uh, to, than Professor Chris Green to talk about it. Uh, we're so lucky to have him on our faculty. Uh, he practiced law with Phelps Dunbar in Jackson after clerking uh, with Judge Barksdale of the U.S. Uh, Fifth Circuit, uh, which is just below the Supreme Court, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And uh, he has written extensively, extensively in constitutional law areas. Uh, he yesterday, just yesterday, debated debated with Professor Eric Siegel of uh, uh, Georgia State University School of Law on uh, the issue of originalism. So we can also talk a little bit about uh, that as well today. It's an honor to have him here. Good morning. Welcome, Professor Green. Yeah, tell us about Constitution Day. How did that go yesterday? It was a lot of fun. Uh, so Eric uh, Siegel and I are uh, uh, old friends. We've run into each other uh, a bunch of times at, uh, at conferences and things. And we uh, are Twitter frenemies, I think. Uh, <laughs> so uh, every so often I'll run into people who will say, oh, my goodness, why on earth do you engage in such lengthy exchanges on Twitter with Siegel? And I'm sure he, he runs into many people as well. But uh, every so often we get people who jump into our Twitter threads and say, oh, you know, they don't really take part, but they say this is a really illuminating exchange. So we thought uh, we have a we have a, a debate series that uh, uh, has uh, our, our uh, uh, Holloman debate series uh, funds uh, uh, having debates like this. We thought, well, uh, let's bring out uh, 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 my Twitter friend of me, uh, Professor Siegel, and uh, uh, let's do it in a, a slightly uh, longer format. So we had uh, uh, an hour of, of formal uh, uh, presentations and then a, a nice, lively uh, discussion. Uh, and what's great is it, they did so civilly. I mean, that, you know, Chris and Eric disagree about things a lot. I mean, they have some points of agreement as well on, you know, the application of originalism and interpreting the Constitution. But they were they, they did so civilly and intelligently. And, you know, you, you kind of miss that in, in, in some of the exchanges we see uh, elsewhere, particularly in, in the state legislature and also in, uh, in, in, in Washington. So it was very refreshing. Well, I'm sorry I missed that. I, I like a good argument if it's reasonably based that it drives me crazy when there's an argument either on sports radio or on some other topic or forum and it's just all anger and nonsense 
and not sticking to what are the points. Uh, you people who spend too much time just trying to talk over another person. I don't enjoy that. But when different points of view are put out, t- to me, that's very interesting. We have recorded the uh, debate. We have uh, currently available. We have a, a record of the live stream, which is sort of uh, uh, if you were sitting in the corner <laughs> looking up, you can see uh, see what like. But we uh, we also have a uh, I think a higher quality audio and video that uh, will be available, uh, and I hope it'll uh, go viral uh, sometime soon. Oh well, maybe we'll put a link to that on this website once I find the link. Once it exists. <laughs> Thanks. So, Professor Green, tell us you were about constitutional originalism. What is that? So that actually, so our debate topic for yesterday, uh, there were two questions. One is, what is originalism? Because that is a uh, fraught question uh, at times. Uh, and is it a good idea? So... Actually, as both Eric and I were using the term, I think it, we, we did actually have a, a, a pretty uh, a close definition of, of originalism. The idea is you've got, the, uh, you've got a text of the Constitution, and it expresses meaning. Uh, originalists would say it expressed meaning at the time of the founding, and that meaning expressed at the time of the founding is binding. It's not something that can be overridden by policy considerations. And uh, so some people think uh, that original textually expressed meaning is completely irrelevant. There aren't that many people like that. Some people say it's relevant, but it's just sort of part of a stew of a bunch of other considerations, so it can be overridden if we uh, 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 have strong reasons to think the Constitution didn't go far enough or it was a bad idea. Uh, but uh, other folks, and I, uh, 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 I'm one of them, uh, uh, I think the original meaning is, uh, uh, is binding. The reason I think it's binding, the basic reason, is because uh, the original meaning is uh, uh, this Constitution. So Article 6 of the Constitution says this Constitution shall be binding. Uh, officers are uh, to be bound by oath to support this Constitution. So figuring out what that phrase refers to is the key task, I think, of constitutional theory. And what are other constitutional theories? If, if uh, originalism is one, what are some other philosophies that Supreme Court justices might subscribe to? Well, it is interesting because so Justice Kagan, when she was nominated, uh, uh, she said, we are all originalists now. Uh, so just, it, it is a little bit uh, uh, unclear exactly what the justices uh, uh, uh Interpretive philosophies. A few of them are, are very clearly uh, 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 originalists, but Justice Alito, for instance, he says he's a pragmatic originalist. Uh, uh, frankly, I'm not sure quite what that is. Uh, it might mean uh, what uh, Justice, what, what uh, uh, Professor Siegel wants, which is you have the original meaning. It matters some, okay, but you got a, other, a, a, a bunch of other stuff in the stew, and you, you mix it all together. Um, I think uh, really that's not really originalism. It's not saying the original meaning is binding. If you uh, if you're kind of add in add in some pragmatic stuff, but at other times he he doesn't take that view. Um, uh, Justice Breyer, for instance, at one point in one of his books, he said, "We the people of the United States." That's not we the people of the founding. Uh, so it almost suggests that the Constitution is being continuously readopted moment by moment, uh, and uh, uh, various. Uh, 
thinkers have said that kind of thing. Alexander Mickeljohn, whom uh, uh, Justice Breyer cites at that point, had had that view. I, I think it's it's uh, 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 wrong on various grounds, but uh, but he seems to seems to take that view. But at other times, he, he says participatory democracy is the key is the key factor. So it is it, it's surprisingly hard to pin folks down on their constitutional theory. And as, uh, you know, I think that's part of what uh, what the confirmation hearings are about: is trying to pin these folks down because uh, uh, it can be it can feel a lot like uh, nailing jello to a wall i think sometimes all right and before we start talking about how the process of uh, confirmation and appointment goes we have an early caller rick from ridgeland we're glad you're part of our show go ahead hello hi rick go ahead we can hear you can you hear me yes i can go ahead okay so my question to the guest is uh um, with um, uh, originally this debate between originalists and, and the more, I guess, the more progressive side saying we need to, it's a living, breathing document. Why don't we uh, simply have const- another constitutional amendment to then put it to bed? Uh, like we have other laws that say stealing is wrong and, and such. Uh, we, we try and create laws or constitutional uh, uh, laws that uh, remove ambiguity. And it seems there's ambiguity here. So why not uh, legislatures? legislators or or the people step forward with a constitutional amendment. And then secondly, the second follow-up question to that is just um, uh, if we were to have a constitutional Congress again where we rewrite the Constitution, does that get rid of all past precedent that is stare decisis? And I'll stay on the line and listen to your answer, please. Sure, sure. Well, yeah, some people have uh, proposed uh, amendments that would explicitly adopt a theory of interpretation. Um, in the, so in, uh, in terms of statutes, we actually do have, uh, uh, it's, it's not a very long uh, section of the U.S. Code, but we have this act called the Dictionary Act. And they have a bunch of, not a bunch, but uh, uh, several uh, principles for interpreting the language uh, uh, of, of the U.S. Code. And uh, there have been a number of people who have said, yeah, we should... We we should adopt a, a, a constitutional amendment saying, I mean, you could say it could adopt many different things. You could say uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, meaning expressed by the constitutional text at the time that text is adopted uh, is the binding uh, 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 law of the land uh, uh, under Article 6. You could say it's not the binding law of the land, but will be overridden when, uh, uh, when judges uh, think it uh, doesn't go far enough or it's, it's a bad idea, it's going the wrong direction. Um, uh, uh, actually, one of, one of my articles, I, uh, one of my earlier articles, I, I, I say uh, the Constitution could have been explicit on uh, a bunch of theories, and if it had been, if the Constitution had defined itself as uh, a particular uh, uh, particular thing, that would be binding even if we thought that definition was a bad idea. So uh, uh, I, uh, I have a, a, a section, uh, the, the contingency of constitutional ontology. So uh, the Constitution could have defined itself uh, uh, one way uh, uh, or uh, uh, another, and that would be binding no matter what we thought if we swore the, the Article 6 oath. Um, you know, second question about the relationship of uh, an enactment and prior precedent. Justice Jackson had a line uh, in, uh, I think it was in the Morissette case in 1952. He said, when, when uh, 
Congress uses a term um, uh, in a statute. It is it's like a plant embedded in the soil of the common law. So you've got all this tradition uh, uh, go, uh, uh, that's been going on for I mean, hundreds of years in the Anglo-American legal tradition. And when we use a term uh, taken from that tradition, it comes with the soil. And I think that is a, a sensible, sensible thing to do. You have to look at uh, what a text expressed in context. And that context is a context uh, that includes precedent from judges, precedent from legislatures, precedent from executive officers. Uh, it includes all kinds of linguistic history. So uh, getting clear, uh, I mean, so uh, uh, as somebody who says, you know, oh, it's just, you know, just look at the text, don't look at, at any of the surrounding material. That's not, a, I think, uh, the right approach to how language works. Context is always, uh, uh, always key. Um, and I can, I can cite some gobbledygook philosophers for you if you'd like, but uh, you probably wouldn't like that. All right. Thanks for that comment, Rick. We're going to take our first break now. We're talking about the appointment and confirmation of Supreme Court justices. Do you remember the name of the president who was later a Supreme Court justice? Everybody go dig out your old civics textbook. Uh, and if you Big have guy. a call, <laughs> if you have a call, if you have a question this morning, please give us a call. Our number is one. 1- 877 MPB ring that's prefix 877 672 7464 our email is legalterms at mpbonline.org you're listening to in legal terms on MPB think radio This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. We realize that not everyone has a chance to listen to our whole show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash in legal terms. It's also available on the MPB Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. This morning we're talking about the appointment and confirmation of Supreme Court justices with our guest, Professor Chris Green. And I I teased a little bit about uh, who was the president uh, who has served on the Supreme Court. And of course, I'm sure you know who it is, uh, Professor Green. Uh, 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 William Howard Taft. <laughs> right. yeah, so. I had it right in front of me. But so good, good, good for you for pulling that out. Uh, we had a call from Rick uh, a moment ago talking about uh, our Constitution. And personally, I would think if our Constitution were too explicit, wouldn't that take away from it being a living document? Well, this, so when you phrase, when you write a, a statute, when you write a constitution, you have a question about how, what level of generality you want to write it. Uh, so in uh, 1819, Justice, uh, Chief Justice Marshall in uh, McCulloch versus Maryland, he said, well, 
if you're trying to explain what powers you're going to give to the federal government, uh, if you were required to be explicit in every single detail, uh, then the Constitution would partake of the prolixity of a legal code. Uh, and uh, if you look at some state constitutions, if you look at the Alabama state constitution, for instance, uh, they have uh, almost all their tax law is actually in the, a lot of their local tax law, especially is in the, the state constitution. It is prolix. Uh, 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 it is very, very long. Um, so that's actually, I mean, actually an interesting question, because when we decide what level of generality, how specific we're going to be in the constitution, we're making a choice about how much we're going to delegate uh, to the future in terms of filling in the facts. So if you think of, I I always have this metaphor in my head where we've got kind of the ground level of the earth and we're kind of pointing out particular things, particular controversies we want to resolve in particular ways. And uh, uh, you can point to particular things. You know, so the Constitution mentions names of states. So those are mentioning, you know, very particular uh, objects that uh, uh, it's designating, picking out. and if you think of kind of going above the surface, you're, you're, you're getting a little more general, uh, but it doesn't have to be that general. So it could be, you know, states now existing uh, 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 and referring to the, uh, the category of the 13 states. And you can it's not hard to figure out, you know, fill, fill that in. But the more and more abstractly you write a provision, uh, the bigger uh, uh, the amount of uh, 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 space there is for future interpreters to fill in by determining the facts. So the 14th Amendment, for instance, which I which I uh, uh, specialize in, the key provision, uh, the Privileges or Immunities Clause, is written in very, very abstract terms. So it says, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Uh, that's it. It doesn't mention race, doesn't mention gender specifically. Uh, it says that all, it had the, we have a uh, citizenship definition earlier in the Constitution, uh, early in, in the 14th Amendment, so we know that uh, uh, everyone born in the U.S. Uh, is a citizen. So we know that. But what are these privileges of citizens of the United States? If you look at the history, uh, it's clearly civil rights. So it's clearly rights about uh, what the uh, government uh, does to you. And it's clearly, I think, uh, an equality provision. So all similarly situated citizens of the United States get the same rights. Uh, but which citizens are similarly situated to which uh, uh, fellow citizens, that is up to uh, a fact finder, and that's up to later interpreters to determine using the actual facts. And so this is, uh, I, I call this uh, uh, this theory, you know, they, I call it the theory of original zin. Uh, uh, so this is the, the sense reference distinction from a, a philosopher, Gottlob Frege. Uh, he distinguished zin, that's S-I-N-N, uh, from bedeutung. Um, but uh, I, I think Professor Gershon may, may uh, hit me over the head if I, if I use any more German. Uh, I may switch to Latin uh, at some point, but oh, uh, but. <laughs> but you have this. You know, you, so there's a bunch of philosophical stuff about the level of, of abstraction at which a, uh, a provision is written that can explain uh, what exactly is going on. All right. Well, and I bef- will never hit Professor. Green <laughs> you know, um, I just I really he his understanding of this area is so deep and and well uh, researched and it's great to have him on because of that and I think you know uh, it's really uh, a pleasure to hear him talk about about these things at such a level but I, I want to ask Chris if I can ask this question I mean we the one uh, the caller before Rick asked about a constitutional convention if we totally change the whole thing 
uh, you know, uh, then would we be from that point, would we be originalist? Or would we also see it grow over time? Would, you know, ha- it would. It would depend how we did it. Uh, so we might say, okay, this is uh, this is year zero. Um, we might, you know, might say we're just not, you know. So we, for instance, there's there's a provision a lot of people don't like uh, equal uh, uh, representation of states in the Senate, and Article Five of the Constitution says we're not allowed to amend that, but we don't have to. I mean, as a matter of just physical brute force, we don't have to obey that. But getting rid of that would be getting rid of the entire Constitution. But we could say, okay, this is year zero. We're not going to swear these Article Six oaths anymore. Uh, we're going to have a new Constitution. And at that point, we, you know, we might want to bake in a provision about how that should be interpreted. Okay. Uh, and uh, it is a little interesting how people behave when they've just adopted something. So in uh, 1982, for instance, Canada adopted a Bill of Rights. And... Uh, it's a little bit different, you know, talking about a constitution, talking about the original meaning of a constitution when you were one of the people who did it um, in Congress in uh, 1789, when they debate uh, removal in 1790, when they start debating the, the bank. There's a bunch of questions about how exactly they're going about it. Uh, one of our former colleagues, actually, Jonathan Ginap, who's uh, taught taught it uh, at, at Ole Miss for two years and is at, at Stanford now, uh, has a book about early uh, treatment of the constitution. Uh, uh, in uh, in Congress and elsewhere, and uh, it is a fascinating, fascinating uh, history. And if we had a constitutional convention and readopted it, uh, we would we would get to relive that that as well. All right, um, but let's pull this back to our original topic before we get to our current events uh, about uh, Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh and his confirmation. Before we get to the Supreme Court Justice's appointment and confirmation information, we have a caller, Sue from Beaumont. Go ahead, Sue. Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, our Constitution was written almost 250 years ago by men whose reflected the society at their time. All the amendments that have been made to the Constitution show how society has changed. 250 years is a long, long time. Maybe it's time to write a new Constitution and include those hard and fast, true nuggets in the new Constitution. Leave the good parts of the old one in, but rewrite the Constitution to reflect the society we live in. Because can you imagine 250 years ago, whatever constitution we have now would be applicable to the future? I, I can't imagine that because things change, but true basic values reflected in the constitution do not change. That's what we need to live in, leave in. But everything else, you could, you could, we need to rewrite the constitution. I think. And also, I would like to ask your guess. Why are Supreme Court justices given a lifetime appointment? Why don't they have term limits like other people? Well, um, so Article Three. Uh, so I can uh, I'll, let me uh, answer your your second question first. Uh, uh, well, I've got it uh, in my mind. Article Three uh, has uh, has a provision. Um, it says uh, a judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may, from time to time, ordain and establish. Uh, the judges, both of the Supreme and inferior courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior. Um, and this was a provision uh, that was um, 
I mean, it, it, a lot of it goes back to the struggles, uh, actually, of the uh, 18th of the, of the 17th century between Parliament and the Stuart kings. So uh, uh, James II uh, was eventually chased out of of England by uh, William and Mary uh, when they came in in, in 1688, and uh, then uh, uh, the 1689 uh, uh, English Bill of Rights, and then the uh, uh, I think the Judiciary uh, uh, Act of uh, 1701 or so uh, uh, established independence of the judges from the king. And the idea was to avoid the abuses that James II had uh, uh, had uh, uh, done when he had uh, uh, told judges what to do. That's a, a brief, uh, you know, that's uh, uh, too quick, I think. Uh, but a bunch, of, you know, a bunch of bad things, uh, this happens a lot in constitutional development. Something bad will happen, and we'll come up with a rule. You know, somebody say, well, that, let that, you know, make sure that never happens again. And if we want that never to happen again, we'll adopt this rule that sometimes will have lots of uh, 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 unintended consequences. So the, the life tenure rule was adopted in early 18th century in England. We, we, we took it over. Some people thought, uh, so at one point, Hamilton and the Constitutional Convention floated an idea, senators should have uh, uh, tenure during good behavior. The president maybe should, uh, you know, we've got this Washington guy, he's a good guy, let's just sort of keep him around uh, 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 as long as, as we can. Uh, they decided not to do that for the president. They, th- they thought about term limits for the president. They didn't do it, but then they adopted it in the 22nd Amendment. Uh, so these issues issues have been on the table really from the very beginning. Uh, Jacksonian democracy uh, uh, spreads in the 1820s. And in Mississippi, so we have actually a a striking difference between our initial constitution of 1817, uh, which had the judges appointed by the legislature, and the constitution of 1832, which then said, oh, we got to have all these people be elected. And uh, uh, having people be elected and having them uh, stand for election again uh, is part of the vibe of American uh, 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 self-identity to an extent since Jackson. But it, it, that was a change in our, 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 uh, our political culture uh, that was pretty significant. Um, but, you know, we baked, baked this rule into Article 3 in 1787 when we drafted it and then when we adopted it. All right. Well, we need to take our next break. We're talking about uh, Supreme Court justices, appointments and confirmations. We're going to get into that when we come back. Um, Hey, the White House opened November 1st, 1800. The U.S. Capitol opened November 17th of 1800. What about our third branch? You've seen the photos of the steps of the Supreme Court building. Do you know when it opened? Our number is one 877 MPB ring. You can uh, to call and participate in our show. You can also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. You're 
You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Gershon is our expert, and our guest today is Professor Chris Green, also an expert. They're both at the University of Mississippi School of Law. We were talking uh, before about the different times when the White House and when the U.S. Capitol building were created. The Supreme Court building, the court was around for 145 years before it got a permanent home of its own. In 1929, at the urging of Chief Justice William Taft, Congress authorized over $9 million to erect a building so that the court would have a home of its own. And we're talking about the Supreme Court appointment and confirmation uh, process today. Uh, that is now a topic of uh, in the news with Brett Kavanaugh. So, uh, Professor Green, remind us about how the Supreme Court justices come to be that. What to, what does the Constitution require? Well, so Article Two, Section Two, uh, Clause Two. So the easy. I always you know, tell my student. I don't, not too many people refer to the provisions this way, but I just call it 222. Uh, so it says, the, the president shall have power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate uh, to make treaties, uh, provided two-thirds of the senators present concur, present concur, and he shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States whose appointment are not otherwise herein provided for, and which shall be established by law. And then there's there's uh, another rule uh, about Congress providing for things. The other main provision that's important is uh, the power of the Senate, uh, power of each House of Congress. Uh, yeah, this is in uh, Article 1, Section 5, Clause 2, 152. Each house may determine the rules of its proceedings. Uh, uh, punishment punish its members for disorderly behavior with the concurrence of two-thirds expel a member. So both houses of Congress uh, have a bunch of rules, and uh, these rules set up committees. Uh, they establish uh, a various uh, uh, supermajority requirements in certain places uh, uh, the, uh, about the filibuster. Uh, these have changed over time. Uh, and they, uh, the thresholds have changed over time. But essentially, uh, Article One gives Congress, gives each House of Congress, the power to uh, delegate uh, agenda-setting power to uh, the committees of uh, of the of the Congress and uh, uh, to the officers uh, of the Congress. So, uh, uh, Article One, Section Three, Clause. Uh, Oh, somewhere in here. The Senate shall choose their other officers. Uh, so the power that uh, Mitch McConnell has in the Senate uh, is a power that he, the Senate is allowed to delegate to him. Uh, it is a very, very substantial power. Uh, this power of the Senate Judiciary Committee is a very, very substantial power. Uh, it's a power the Senate could uh, could take away. Uh, and it could, you know, uh, if you look at the history of, of uh, fights in Congress, uh, frequently they'll be fighting about which committee something gets sent to because which committee something gets sent to will uh, uh, not infrequently be outcome determinative about whether that bill gets reported favorably or whether it gets considered at all. Uh, so the processes uh, that the, the Senate has used uh, are a matter of uh, the Senate's own discretion. Um, and it can adopt these rules. It can, it can 
apply these rules, and uh, they've obviously undergone quite a bit of, of change uh, uh, in the, just in the past few years. Well, let's start with the appointment process that the president has. How does he go about making an appointment? Well, so this president, President Trump, has been very, very unusual in uh, the sense that he ran for president with a platform that included a list of judges. Uh, uh, nothing at all like that has happened before. Uh, uh, candidates have run before and they've you know, maybe said something about their general uh, general principles in their uh, uh, campaign speeches. But in a list of actual uh, actual people, this list of 21 people, uh, uh, nothing like that has has happened uh, uh, before uh, and then uh, so uh, the president uh, ran on that. He picked one of those f- to fill Justice Scalia's seat. Uh, and uh, uh, last December, he added another five names. So he took one person off the list, uh, put him on the Supreme Court, and then uh, there were twenty people still on the list. Uh, and then he had another five. One of whom was uh, 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 Brett Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit in July 2016, when the initial list of 21 came out. Uh, uh, I think there were three people, uh, probably, that people thought, wow, it's, it's a little bit surprising they're not on that, that list. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh, Jeff Sutton from the Sixth Circuit, and uh, uh, Paul Clement, former Solicitor General. Uh, so it, it was completely unsurprising, utterly. It was, it was actually mildly surprising he wasn't on the list in, in, in uh, summer 2016. It was completely unsurprising that he was one of the five uh, uh, added to the list uh, December, uh, uh, December 2017. So and it was very unsurprising that he was he was he was nominated. He was it, in 2012 when people were talking about whom uh, uh, a justice uh, uh, whom whom a President Romney might might nominate. Uh, people thought, well, Kavanaugh or somebody like Kavanaugh. Uh, uh, he was he's clearly been uh, among the uh, 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 prime contenders to be nominated by any any Republican president. Uh, for many, many, uh, not many years, but, you know, at least at least the last five, ten years. He's been on the radar. He's yeah, he's been on the radar. He's been a pretty big blip <laughs> on the radar. So uh, so, that, you know, the president's got got his people. Uh, 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 White House legal counsel Don McGahn, uh, as uh, I mean, he was central to the process of coming up with that list. Uh, uh, and he's been also uh, central to the process of picking people from that list. Uh, so he obviously they talked to senators. They uh, they had some conversations with Justice. Justice Kennedy himself, uh, uh, and uh, they they came up with Kavanaugh, and it was it was utterly unsurprising that they did so. Hey, Chris, you know one one thing that surprises me is could you talk a little bit about what qualifications the Constitution requires for someone to be on the Supreme Court? Yeah, so it's interesting. So the Constitution it gives so Article One, Section Two, Clause Two says if you're going to be in the House, you have to have been a citizen of the United States uh, uh, for seven years, and you have to be 25 year old years old. Uh, uh, one, three, three said so to be a senator, you got to be 30 years old and have been nine years a citizen of the United States. Uh, Article Two, Section One, Clause Five says for the president. You have to be a natural-born citizen uh, or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this Constitution. Um, You don't have any requirements uh, in the Constitution to be uh, a Supreme Court justice. Um, And actually, I don't know what the statute – it's possible the statute says something like you have to be learned in the law. I think the the statute to be attorney general uh, uh, says you have to be learned in the law. And there are various – statutory limits on the nomination power that some people have suggested might have constitutional problems um, because 
there's nothing in Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 that says the president, you know, uh, is limited. Um, uh, it seems if the president and the Senate want to nominate somebody who's of, of uh, uh, a particular party, the fact that there's a statute telling the Senate what to do, that might be, you know, that might be a constitutional issue. It, it, uh, and it's a little bit surprising it hasn't actually been been litigated uh, 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 so far. But generally, who you're looking for, you're, I mean, I think the chief qualification should be constitutional fidelity, somebody who's going to adhere to this Constitution, somebody who's going to keep his promise uh, that he's going to make in Article 6. Um, that's easier to do if you're uh, uh, knowledgeable about the history. If you're knowledgeable about the exact questions, uh, you should you should uh, uh, you should be asking. I think uh, I do think some a little bit of philosophy training is is nice to have. Justice Gorsuch has has some. He's uh, I think one of the one of the only justices with a uh, with a full doctorate uh, 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 to be on the court. But um, there's just a lot of incommensurable. Uh, uh, things you want in a, in, a, in a judge. You want character. You want judgment, ability to um, not go off uh, on, a, on a rabbit trail unnecessarily. Um, um, you, you know, but constitutional fidelity is the main, main, thing, uh, main thing you're looking for. All right. And before we move on to what advice and consent of the Senate means, we're going to take a call. And if you would like to call us yourself to ask a question or make a comment, our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's prefix 877-672-7464. Seven four six four, and we're going to go to Kinsey in Mobile now. Go ahead, Kinsey. Uh, yes. How are you doing? We're doing great. What's your question or comment? Uh, yeah, I, I was uh, I was wanting to comment on, uh, I guess the, the the loss of faith in our judicial system, our I guess our overwhelming distrust in the government, given that uh, legality and morality are are so, seldom like copacetic with one another. Um, it, it, it seems like uh, everybody that's, and it, it's always been this way, everyone that makes the laws, you know, seldom abide by them. And, uh, you know, like our current administration, uh, you know, it, it seems like all the bad guys are, are kind of running the shows of, you know, the, the organizations that are there to help the people. You know, like the things that's going on with the educational system and the EPA. Um, how, how does how, how do you not lose faith in a system that is, you know, so obviously broken when it comes to the judicial system? That might be a fantastic question for our next hour, our relationship doctor on Southern Remedy at <laughs> 11. But uh, what do you think about that, Professor Green and Professor Gershon? Again, I think constitutional fidelity is it's a it's a uh, uh, it's a you know it's a it's a it's a particular kind of fidelity, and people uh, have to be the kind of people who keep their promises. And we are in. I mean, I don't know if it's how much of it is the uh, you know, the uh, spirit of the age, and how much is is the just the crooked timber of humanity in general. Um, People frequently don't want to keep their promises, and uh, uh, you look at uh, uh, the Supreme Court's uh, work product uh, frequently. Uh, I mean, not frequently, but many times. I think everybody who looks at them says, "Yeah, some of these cases, they're just making stuff up, uh, and that is not good." Um, how do you deal with this? 
I think one, you know, read it, rereading the Federalist Papers, uh, you find a fairly sober minded reflection on human nature. And what do you do when you have fallible people who want to do the wrong thing? Uh, how do you keep them from abusing their power? Well, Federalist 51 has this picture of uh, ambition, counteracting ambition. Uh, so the idea of the, the federal constitution is to say, well, we've got a bunch of bad people running the legislature. You've got a bunch of bad people. Uh, 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 Maybe they think Washington's a good guy, but it's going to be some bad people running the executive branch. Anyway, all of his people, everybody, you know, everybody agrees at least some of Washington, Washington's underlings are bad people, too. Uh, and you got some, you know, you got the crooked timber of humanity that you, from which you're selecting judges. What do you do? Well, you kind of make them fight against each other so that they can't uh, uh, dominate the people and abuse them too badly because they're too busy uh, abusing each other and fighting over their turf uh, uh, there. Is this a perfect system? Oh, my goodness, no. Um, is it better? It's better than a lot of systems. Uh, uh, so uh, the idea of the framers is to avoid accumulating all powers into one set of hands so that they can just, on their own say so, uh, just go off and, and do something. They have to get the cooperation of other branches in order to get anything done. To some extent, the judiciary has managed to uh, uh, get a lot of things done on, its, on just its own say-so. Um, certainly, a lot of the executive emergency powers that they've, they've, uh, they've arrogated allow them to do that. Uh, Congress is about the only one that hasn't, hasn't really uh, been uh, on its own tyrannical, but they've delegated so much power uh, to the executive, they've been maybe tyranny enablers to some extent. Um, so... Uh, you look back at uh, I, I would recommend read it, rereading uh, 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 Federalist Papers. I mean, especially the kind of thirty-seven to fifty-one, which is uh, Madison's kind of mid chunk. There's a lot of really uh, uh, fascinating reflections on on human nature uh, uh, there, and uh, you really feel like it's it's just ripped from the headlines. Uh, but. These are these are who we are. Uh, we, the, the Constitution was not intended to do without virtue, and it was wasn't intended to uh, uh, assume that everybody was going to be uh, uh, be perfectly virtuous. If men were angels, Madison says, we would need no uh, government at all. But we do uh, uh, because we're not angels, and. You know, there's there's degrees of, of how angelic people are. And certainly you look around and think, whew, these these folks are really, really not angels. Uh, but uh, but we muddle along and do the best we can. And we try to set up structures that are going to constrain that. And this hour is just flying by. We need to take our last break of the show. We're talking about the appointment and confirmation of Supreme Court justices. I think we've kind of been on a bit of a movie kick here at In Legal Terms lately. And I'm going to come back with uh, a list of some uh, Supreme Court movies. We'll see what Professor Green and Professor Gershon, what are some of their favorites. We have just a few more minutes. If you need to call in with your uh, questions about Supreme Court justices, our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's prefix 877 7464. Our email is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll try to get to advice and consent of the Senate when we come back. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of this very interesting program, you can listen to our whole show again at mpbonline.org slash in legal terms. It's also available on the MPB Media app, along with all our local shows, where you can listen, download it and listen to it as a podcast. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon and Professor Chris Green from the University of Mississippi School of Law. We're, tr- we're talking about the appointment and confirmation of the judges, but it's all wrapped up in the Constitution. Professor Gershon, we've had some emails and some people who haven't been able to stay on the line who are really interested in talking about the the Constitution as a whole. So we may need to designate an additional show just to talk about the Constitution. Well, I know that, uh, I mean, we're, that Chris Green could talk about this, you know, for several <laughs> shows. I know that, and it would be great. And, in fact, I laughed at, at, at him because he mentioned that he had three copies of the Constitution yesterday when he gave his debate, and he's got the, the same three today. So uh, he loves the Constitution the way I love the Internal Revenue Code. And he, uh, <laughs> There's something wrong with you. <laughs> There's something wrong with me, but it's a different wrong. All right. Well, and I like, I like legal movies. So some of my favorites. Um, I like the Pelican Brief, uh, talking about the assassination of two fictional uh, Supreme Court justices. I also just recently watched the uh, 2018 RGB movie about Ruth Gator, uh, Bader, Gator Ben. I can't even say her name. Gator Binsberg. Gator Binsberg. <laughs> Bader Ginsburg, yes. And uh, I know PBS had a series, The Supreme Court. Do either of you gentlemen have any? I know there's also a lot of older ones. Do you have any good Supreme Court movies you like? I don't know. I we actually we had an event uh, a couple weeks ago uh, where we uh, uh, Professor Alexandria and I uh, gave some commentary on the on the RBG uh, uh, documentary. Um, I don't know. We were uh, yesterday at, at the debate. Uh, Professor Siegel and I were, were talking about whether the to, to what extent uh, uh, differences about constitutional interpretation are like the differences in in appreciation of movies. So he said, "There's no truth of the matter about whether Godfather One is better than Godfather Two. And I said, "That's." That has a truth. <laughs> that has a truth value. It's false. Um, I don't know, but particularly law related ones. Um, well, we'll let you think about that while we yeah. take I, I can, our. I'm gonna. I'm going to throw in Gideon's trumpet, which oh, is yes. uh, uh, my my friend Bruce Jacob, my former dean, was the uh, lawyer who lost the case of Gideon, and he's portrayed in that movie uh, not very favorably. Bruce was a lot smarter than the person who played, but it's really a great a great movie and a great book. Godfather Two does have a has a, a hearing in the Senate. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well crooked, we have uh, a call we want to get to before we get to our uh, advice and consent, which I don't even know how much time we're going to have. Larry from Jackson, go ahead with your comment or question. Yes, sir. Uh, I know uh, like a president can be impeached for certain uh, violations of the law. Okay, be it obstruction of justice, uh, abuse of power, uh, perjury, like the articles that were drawn up against Richard Nixon for his impeachment. Okay? If, if the Supreme Court justice is guilty of similar crimes. Can he too likewise be impeached? 
correct? That's right. So the the uh, there's only one impeachment provision, and it's the same. So it would be the same uh, uh, standard for uh, uh, both the uh, uh, president or for um, uh, for justices, and it's uh, 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 high crimes and misdemeanors is the key uh, the key term. I'm looking for the uh, the, the text here. Uh, um, uh, yeah, Article 2, Section 4. The president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, the word misdemeanor, it's, it's interesting that etymologically it is uh, means having a bad demeanor, so a bad inclination to do things. Um, there is some debate about whether this actually re- even requires a violation of the law. So if you think somebody is just sort of uh, uh, sort of sleazy uh, and he maybe hasn't done anything yet, but you think he, he might, uh, um, there is at least a, a reasonable argument based on the meaning of the term misdemeanor that that's having a bad demeanor. Um, uh, Andrew Johnson in uh, 1868 went through an impeachment trial, and they, they seriously considered uh, whether uh, talking smack about the Congress in 1866 was enough of a bad thing. He, he called Congress a so-called Congress, and they said, we, we should impeach him just for that. Uh, and there, there was a strong argument that they, 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 they could have done that. But it's the same standard for the president and for, uh, and for justices and for lower court judges. All right, Professor Green, we have one minute <laughs> to talk about consent of the Senate. Now, what what does the Senate do? Tell us about the hearings. Yeah, so the hearings, they, there's no requirement that they have hearings. They, they have to give their consent. So a lot of us have signed a lease, and we say uh, we're not allowed to uh, 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 assign our lease to somebody. And you'll sometimes see a provision saying, uh, but the uh, landlord shall give his consent, such consent not to be unreasonably withheld. There's not a provision like that in Article 2 about the Senate. And the Senate can withhold consent, as they did with uh, uh, Judge uh, Garland uh, uh, two years ago. Yeah, for a bad reason or for no reason, in terms of their power, uh, the, resp- the, uh, the, the responsibility is, is, uh, is with the senators and the people who elect the senators. So if you don't, don't like the way that they've withheld consent, you can, you can vote against it. But I think it's, it's pretty clear that they do have the power to withhold consent, uh, even on uh, uh, grounds that may seem to lots of people to be poor. All right. And this is going to wrap us up. It's interesting that in the the times right now, it's uh, kind of a soap opera going on on your C-SPAN and your news stations. This is very true. All right. Well, this is wrapping us up for today for In Legal Terms. Our call screener today has been Java Chapman. Our board engineer in Jackson has been Jay White. Professor Richard Gershon, we're so glad to have you here each week. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Uh, we are appreciative of our other host. To our other expert today is uh, Professor Chris Green, both from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Up next is our Tuesday Southern Remedy Show, Relatively Speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress. I hope you'll join us again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. 